Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you knew that Doug Wilson's father, Jim Wilson, has a book now on audio in the Canon app called Principles of War. Evangelism is a battle. You should fight to win it. In the study of warfare, great men have concluded that there are some overriding principles which, if followed, will always tend towards success. Get Jim Wilson's Principles of War on audio today on the Canon app. Download it and subscribe. So, welcome to the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. Uh, this is podcast episode 185. 185. So, I want to talk a little bit about Deuteronomic blessings. Deuteronomic blessings. One of the things that the Christian church has struggled with over the centuries, actually, has been how to resolve the issue of continuity and discontinuity when it comes to the promised blessings of God. So God promises blessings, uh, and and I in the Old Testament, He promises blessings that uh, <laughs> that affect your vineyard and your flocks and your herds and your your endeavors. They're very tangible, temporal, historical blessings, and it's very evident that this is the way they function. And many Christians have assumed. That that means in the Old Testament, God promises all kinds of material blessings, and then in the New Covenant, everything is spiritualized. Everything ascends into the heavenlies. Now, so we are blessed in Christ in the heavenly realms and so forth. Now, of course, that is true, that we are, we are blessed in the heavenly realms, but so were the Old Testament saints blessed in the heavenly realms, even though you don't have... Um, as much discussion of it, there's not as much uh, emphasis on it in the Old Testament. It was still true when Jesus refuted the Sadducees about the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. He refuted them from the book of Genesis. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Jesus argues against the Sadducees, saying that they did not understand the scriptures and they didn't understand the power of God. Which means that Jesus is saying the popular received opinion that the Old Testament doesn't really have a doctrine of the resurrection or doesn't really have a doctrine of the afterlife or doesn't really have a doctrine of a continued existence after this life, that it was all, it was all concerned about this life. Jesus dismisses that view as one that doesn't know the scriptures. When Jesus is talking to Martha, about her brother Lazarus, Martha says, as a faithful Jew in the first century would say, not having, she doesn't have any of the New Testament, mind you. She says, I know that God will raise him up at the last day. So this was part of the inheritance of the Jews. The Pharisees understood angels and demons and the resurrection. And Jesus says that the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat listen to what they teach, don't do what they say because they're hypocrites, but their position is more orthodox, more biblically grounded than, the, than that of the Sadducees. Now, what that means is that 
if there are spiritual blessings promised to the Old Testament saints, you wonder, suppose we flip it around, are there what I'm calling Deuteronomic blessings promised to New Testament saints? Well, I think so. I don't see any ground for arguing that Deuteronomic blessings, material blessings, physical blessings, monetary blessings, financial blessings, evaporate just because we're in the new covenant. Now, you might say, oh, I see, health and wealth, you know, health and wealth guy. Well, no, 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 no. Here's an example or anecdote that illustrates part of the problem. A number of years ago, I had an episode, I just sometimes, I wake up in the middle of the night and that's just the way it is, you know, it's two in the morning and I'm awake. And so, uh, so what I'll do is I'll get up and uh, get up for half an hour or so and read or watch television and, or, you know, do something to kill the time and then go back to bed and see if that helps. And it usually does. And so you, you don't need to feel sorry for me at all. I don't have, I don't have insomnia problems. That's not, but occasionally I wake up in the middle of the night. And when I wake up in the middle of the night, I have discovered interesting things on the television. There are things going on. <laughs> there are things going on out there that one might never suspect, right? One time I turned, I turned it on and there was this health and wealth preacher going on about, and, and he was down the line health and wealth, uh, prosperity gospel kind of guy. Now, here's the thing that, that you have to reckon with. He had a lot of verses. There were many passages that he could point to. And the passages that he point to, he could point to, were not just Old Testament passages. Uh, the the New Testament promises temporal blessings also. Now there's a there's a mainstream evangelical reaction to the health and wealth stuff that I generally am sympathetic with, and and teaches that the prosperity gospel is a uh, heresy or at least heresy in seed form, which I also accept. But I do want to say that he had a lot of verses. And even though those verses were not saying quite as much as he wanted them to say, or they weren't saying what he was saying in exactly the same way, they were saying something way more robust than contemporary evangelicalism wants to pretend. In other words, we ought to be looking to God for Deuteronomic blessings. It's very straightforward, really. If the gospel comes to a a region or a town. Let's say you've got a bunch of people living like rank heathens, a, a bunch of people, and and some a powerful work, a powerful church gets planted there, and people start getting saved, and over time, the city begins to be transformed. All right, and the city is transformed simply and solely because people are getting their sins forgiven, and they are getting right with God. But one of the things that happens when, when a bunch of people get right with God, one of the first things that happens is that the cocaine bill goes way down. The rapes and the murders and the drug deals and the, all of these unseemly activities, they start to go away. And one of the first things that will start to happen as a consequence is the development of a middle class. In other words, a man will marry a woman and he will stay married to her and he'll be faithful to her and he'll be around for the kids that uh, they have together. And those kids grow up, grow up with the mom and dad. And when they grow up with the mom and dad, uh, a lot few, fewer of them wind up going to the penitentiary. And in, in short, what, hap what starts to happen is what I would group under the heading of Deuteronomic 
blessings. This world, tangible, physical, palpable blessings. The, the quality of education is going to improve. The quality of life is going to improve. The standard of living is going to improve. And, of course, and this is where I'm not a health and wealth guy, no, not always. So it's very important that we look in um, Hebrews 11. This is my go-to passage on this whole question of health and wealth and, and martyrdom, where in that, in that section of Hebrews 11, it talks about those uh, great saints of old who by faith conquered kingdoms. They put armies to flight. They stopped the mouths of lions. In other words, they, they achieved great victories in this life, and they did it by faith. And they did it as examples or exemplars for us. But also, in that same passage, it seamlessly moves into the people who were sawn in two, who, were, uh, who wandered in this world, living in caves of whom the world was not worthy. So you have people who are martyrs, who live a sacrificial life. Well, that too is part of our lot. That too is done by faith. So consequently, a biblical worldview has needs to make room for a health and wealth slash sacrificial lifestyle. And what I do is I group it all in, all under the heading of Deuteronomic blessings, not health and wealth by itself, not sacrifice and, and giving things up by itself as though that were the only way, but rather fierce loyalty to the God of Scripture, fierce loyalty to Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who will bless us. And he will bless us in remarkable ways, and those blessings will be both material and spiritual. So, podcast episode 185, we have been on the subject of fear for a few weeks, and we will continue on with that this week. This week, in our study of homartiology, our word is the adjective, delos, meaning fearful, D-E-I-L-O-S. Delos, meaning fearful. Unlike the noun and the verb, we have a few instances of this word being used. The first usage occurs in two different Gospels, Matthew and Mark, and the occasion is right when the Lord calmed the sea. In Matthew, the Lord rebukes the disciples for fearing the storm. Matthew 8.26 And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So. He rebukes the disciples, and then he rebukes the wind and the waves. The wind and the waves, incidentally, obeyed him more quickly than the disciples than the disciples did. So the, uh, there was a storm going on outside the boat, and there was a storm of fear going on inside the boat. So you've got tumultuous waves outside the boat and a storm of fear inside the boat. And uh, Jesus speaks to the wind and waves, and they calm right down. And he speaks to the disciples, and they don't calm right down. Uh, well, and we can see this in Mark, in the parallel passage. In Mark, the Lord rebukes the disciples after he had calmed the storm. It appears that first, they were afraid of the storm, and then they were afraid because the Lord calmed the storm with just a word. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? That's Mark 440. 440. So that uh, appears to be what appears to have happened is this. Jesus is in the boat with the disciples. The storm arises. They're afraid of the storm. Jesus rebukes them. Why, why are you so fearful? He rebukes the storm. The storm obeys him right away. And then he turns back to the disciples and rebukes them again. 
both for their fear of the storm and the general overall reaction would indicate that they are, at some point there, they move into being afraid of Jesus. So, uh, so they're afraid of the wind and the waves, and then they're afraid of the one who can just speak the word to the wind and the waves. Uh, the word, uh, this word, uh, delos, uh, occurs once in Revelation, and it brings a terrifying thought with it. The idea of hell is, of course, terrible uh, regardless, regardless of the kind of sinner uh, that is thrown into hell. Hell is hellish for everyone, right? Murderers and fornicators and liars and so on are thrown into hell, and that is, of course, awful. It is awful to be among the damned. But the list in Revelation begins with a threatened hell for the fearful, a lake of fire for the cowardly would seem to me to be a double damnation. In, in other words, if you've got a proud man or a haughty man or a, a whoremonger or you know someone who has given himself to all sorts of uh, licentiousness, uh, having his uh, comeuppance, having justice come at him is uh, terrible. But to be a coward and go to hell and to be thrown into hell for being a coward, to be thrown into hell for being fearful, and to be thrown into hell as a coward, it seems to me to be the, the frozen limit, right? Revelation 21.8 says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And it's quite striking that the first sin mentioned uh, in that list is the fearful delos. So, continuing with episode 185 of the podcast, my book review uh, this time around is The Puritan Hope by Ian Murray. Ian Murray has written a number of books that have been a great blessing to me, but The Puritan Hope was a book that was very important to me. Now, I need to say something about books generally uh, here. Uh, Tolkien was once asked where all his ideas came from, and uh, he, he said, that they grew up out of the leaf mold of his mind. They grew up out, out, of the, out of the leaf mold of his mind. And there are times where, where we get the wrong idea of what books are supposed to do for us, and we get the wrong idea from our schooling. So let's say you go, you've gone to a, a, a decent school, one that made you read great books and you, great novels, and, and you had an English lit class, and so the teacher gives you a quiz for Pride and Prejudice or War and Peace or whatever it is you're, you are to have read. And she gives you a quiz simply to determine whether or not you uh, read it as you were assigned to read it. But that, that creates the optical illusion that people have that in order to, to really profit from the book, I've got to be able to pass that quiz at any time for the rest of, you know, any time for the rest of my life. So, but that's not how the blessing of books works. You don't think that a conversation you had with your wife 10 years ago was valueless unless you could pass a quiz on the content of that conversation. Didn't we talk, you know, husband and wife will oftentimes say, to, didn't we talk about this? Yeah, I think we talked about it a month ago and neither one of them can remember the details of the conversation. But that does not mean that that conversation was valueless. It doesn't mean that the value of it was no good. There have been times, 
and this is all, this is, I'm going to get back to the Puritan hope in a minute. Believe me, trust me. There are times when I'm sitting in my office, you know, doing something else and my eye falls on a book that's on my shelf. And I think, oh, that looks interesting. And I'll get up and pull it off the shelf and flip, flip it open. And my blue highlighter marks are all through it. So apparently I read this before. And there's been more than one occasion, I think, where I've read a book twice by accident. Sometimes I've read a book a second or a third time because it was so good. And I did that on purpose. But there have been a few times where I've read a book twice by accident, or having forgotten that I read it before. And someone might say, well, see, you're not, you're not paying attention. This is no good. But you don't have to pass a quiz on where every leaf from every tree falls on the forest floor in order for that leaf to help contribute to the compost that will make up a rich forest floor, right? So, all of this to say, uh, The Puritan Hope was a crucial book in my uh, theological development. I, basically, the, the Puritan Hope is about the missions movement and the post-millennial hope that drove many of the early um, uh, missionaries in the, in the world mission movement whether you're talking about people like David Livingston or Kerry or, you know. And Ian Murray does a wonderful job describing the Puritan hope as the, uh, as the hope that grew up out of the Reformation. Uh, not all the Reformers were what we would call post-mill now. But in the aftermath of the Reformation, that eschatology uh, developed and was the received view from, let's say, the uh, 1600s down through the early part of the 1800s. And Ian Murray does a marvelous job showing how this eschatological hope of the world coming to Christ was a major influence on the development of world mission. And if you sat me down, and this is the, the first part of this review, if you sat me down today and gave me a quiz on the content of the Puritan hope, I'm sure I would flunk the quiz. If I were taking a class on it, and you said, what, what does he talk about in chapter six? I have no idea what he talked about in chapter six. But I can tell you that if you asked me to list uh, 10 books that had the biggest impact on me in my life, uh, The Puritan Hope would be, uh, would be one of them, because it was the right book at the right time. So, uh, what, what, happened was, what happened was this. I, I had um, rejected some years be before I was reformed, before I came into a Reformed understanding, I read a book by Charles Finney on revival, and I think it was Lectures on Revival or something like that. I read a book by Finney, and I was appalled by what I read. I, I just, this is awful. And I thought, well, if this is what revival was, then who needs, you know, who needs re revival? I think A.W. Tozer once said, if revival means more of what we're doing now, then we, we don't need, we most emphatically do not need a revival. Revival, a true revival, would be a change in what we're doing now. Well, what, what happened was I walked away from revivalism, which had, had been sort of been my upbringing, part of my upbringing in, in my youth, and I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. And revivalism was, you know, held an honored place. And so I uh, walked away from revivalism, and then I wound up through a series of circumstances, becoming post-mill. And the Puritan hope was in the mix there somehow. In an odd progression, 
most people become reformed and then post-mill. I became post-mill first and as a result became reformed. What happened was I came into an optimistic take on the future of world mission. Uh, you know, the world is going to be converted. The world is going to come to Christ. And then I looked around at the world and I thought, well, not at this rate, it won't. This is kind of lame. So that caused me to reopen my study of revival. And I went back to people like Whitfield and Edwards. And I concluded that the kind of revival that was not God dishonoring, that was going to result in this um, Puritan hope coming to fulfillment, was the kind of revival that was a fruit that grew on one kind of tree. And that tree was uh, basically a reformed understanding of and preaching of the gospel. And in that, in that uh, time where I was transitioning from a pessimistic eschatology to an optimistic one, and that bringing reformed theology with it, the Puritan hope was absolutely foundational. It's just such an encouraging book. Mm-hmm. 